Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we talk to an astrophysicist who was recently awarded a $3 million breakthrough prize in physics for her role in the discovery of pulsars 50 years ago and for a lifetime of scientific leadership. If you took a thimble, a sewing thimble, and the population of the world, about 7 billion people, by the time you jammed 7 billion people into that sewing thimble, it would weigh the same as if it were filled with stuff from one of these stars. That was Jocelyn Bell Burnell on the density of pulsars. She spoke to the FT science editor, Clive Cookson, about her discoveries and about what she sees as the most exciting new areas of future research. Jocelyn, what was your reaction when you first heard from the Breakthrough Prize organisers that you'd won the prize? Well, there was this telephone call from a former colleague in the USA, which totally surprised me and actually left me speechless, which is not something that often happens to me. But I had never in my wildest dreams considered this a possibility. So I was really, really surprised and delighted. And you've come up with a very generous and imaginative way to spend the funds. Tell us about that. Yes, well, I hope this will make some change. I'm passing the money to the Institute of Physics for the UK and Ireland, which is the professional body for physicists, with the idea that they fund graduate studentships for people from minorities in physics, underrepresented groups in physics. Who are you thinking of in those underrepresented groups? It's tempting to say anything other than white males, but that's not quite fair. We are very lacking in Afro-Caribbean faces. We have some Southeast Asian faces. We have a shortage of women. And I also believe in general that having an international body is more stimulating than having just a British body. When you started your career in the 1960s, presumably the situation was much worse than it is now. How much better has it got? Let's look on the optimistic side, and you're going to be helping it get better still, I hope. It has undoubtedly improved, and there's a lot more attention given to the retention of women in physics. Previously, there wasn't any. Some areas of physics seem to attract women more than others, which is interesting. I think there's different cultures in different bits of physics. So astrophysics, biophysics, medical physics have more women than some of the other areas of physics. Why is it more generally that physics, engineering and maths have attracted fewer women than the biological sciences, do you think? I have data on women around the world in astrophysics, and there is huge variability. The world average is 17, 17%. The English-speaking countries cluster below that value. South American countries can get 30, 35% female. France, Italy, Spain do well for women. Netherlands and Germany do worse than the English-speaking countries. Japan and India, perhaps no surprise, are way, way down the bottom in single-figure percentages. 
Clearly, there's very large cultural effects because I don't really believe that French-Italian women's brains are significantly different from British women's brains. I think it's to do with the culture and the history of the culture in those countries. What's acceptable for women to do, what's considered prestigious, the men will go do that and leave the other things for women. Cultural issues like do you have parents nearby that might help with the childminding? Or are you in a country where there's a great range of income and there's a number of poor women who'd be only too happy to come and be your nursemaid, housemaid, cook, laundry maid, while you go do astronomy? Having role models, leaders who are women or members of the unrepresented minorities makes a big difference as well. And that's particularly where you come in, isn't it? I believe that is the case, although I personally never had a role model. But yes, I think it encourages people sort of saying, well, if she can do it, maybe I can do it too. What brought you into astrophysics without that role model? It was quite clear when we started secondary school that I was good at physics. And through those years, I was wondering what kind of physics. My father was very widely read. Um, He was a brain of Britain for Northern Ireland and brought home all sorts of books from the public library. And one day he brought home some astronomy books and I looked at these. I could recognise in them the physics I was already doing at school. And I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do. Before we talk more about astronomy and astrophysics, I'd like to ask you a bit about the role of prizes. You were not someone who shared the Nobel Prize for the discovery of pulsars, in which you played an important role. You've now won this breakthrough prize as a proliferation of prizes that are trying to not exactly outcompete the Nobels, but gather some of the attention that goes to them. What do you think is the role of prizes, and should you have won a Nobel? Certainly now there are a number of fairly new prizes. Gruber, Kavli, Shaw, uh, Blatnik, all of which I think aim to match or overmatch the Nobel Prize. I think it's healthy that there's more than one prize because prize committees can have preferences and, and you know, people or areas can get overlooked. So I'm, I'm comfortable with that. The Nobel Prize issue... I was a student when the discovery was made and as I understand it at that stage the Nobel Prize Committee simply didn't consider students. They didn't know I existed, let alone what gender I was or anything else. So you don't put that particular exclusion down to ignoring women? No, definitely not. You told me when we spoke on the phone for an FT article about your prize that you thought you might actually have been better off in terms of enjoying life, not having won the Nobel Prize. Yes, uh, I know some people who've won Nobel Prizes and once you've got a Nobel Prize, nobody else gives you anything because they feel they can't match it. So not getting a Nobel Prize in my early years, I think has actually been an advantage because I didn't get a Nobel Prize, I've got zillions of other prizes, which means that most years there's been some kind of event, party, presentation, which has been far more fun than getting a Nobel Prize, a fantastic week in Stockholm, and then nothing. Let's talk about the work for which you did contribute, the discovery of pulsars. Tell our listeners who don't know what a pulsar is, what this strange astronomical body 
far out in the galaxy is. So there's now several thousand pulsars known and the number continues to grow with new facilities, new telescopes. They are both tiny and heavy. They're about 10 miles across. They weigh, and I'm going to count on my fingers, thousand million 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 tons, much the same as the sun. So they are incredibly dense. To give people some feeling for that, if you took a thimble, a sewing thimble, and the population of the world, about 7 billion people, by the time you jammed 7 billion people into that sewing thimble, it would weigh the same as if it were filled with stuff from one of these stars. It is really, really dense, with some fascinating physics, it has to be said, quite out of this world, not to make too dreadful a pun. So they're extremely interesting objects. They spin. Somehow, I'm not sure that we fully understand yet how, they produce a beam of radio waves, which as they spin, they swing round the sky, a bit like a lighthouse swinging a beam of light round the horizon. And if that beam of radio waves falls on the earth, we see a pulse. And then the next time it falls on the earth, we see a pulse. And so we see this regular stream of pulses typically about a second apart or maybe half a second apart. They're neutron stars, aren't they? That incredibly dense material that you've talked about. Is it more or less pure neutrons? No, it's not. It's rich in neutrons, which is why we call it neutron stars. Neutrons are one of the constituent particles of the nucleus of the atom, so we're quite familiar with them. We're very unfamiliar with material at this density, but it does indeed seem to be the case that they will be rich in neutrons, hence they become called neutron stars. Neutron stars have been in the news over the last two or three years because the amazing cataclysmic event of a neutron star collision was observed using the new form of astronomy, gravitational wave astronomy. Tell us a bit about that and why you think that might lead. Yes, that's the exciting discovery of the century and it got a Nobel Prize a year or so ago, absolutely rightly. It's a very, very difficult waveform to work with. The signals are quite weak and there have been groups in universities, particularly in the University of Glasgow, developing the techniques for 40 years, gradually improving them. And in the last few years, they've got it to the level where they can detect these. And what's been happening is there's been a pair of stars. There are a lot of stars that are in pairs. Uh, That's not unusual. These have been massive stars which have ultimately evolved to be these neutron stars. So we end up with a pair of neutron stars orbiting each other. The stars orbiting each other changes the pattern of gravity in the vicinity and that change in the pattern travels out through space at the speed of light. And that's what becomes the gravitational wave. It's this regularly changing pattern of gravity sends out these ripples in space-time. That actually carries away energy from the pair of stars, which makes the pair of stars move closer, which makes them orbit faster. So you get slightly higher frequency gravitational waves which causes the stars to lose energy, so they move closer, go around even faster, and they gradually spiral in. And it culminates in a merger, basically a collision. And that gives you a little burst of gravitational waves. So what has been detected so far are the last few orbits of this pair of stars and the final collision. 
we've been expecting this. In fact, we were slightly surprised that the first things detected by gravitational waves were not colliding neutron stars, but colliding black holes. But now we've also seen the colliding neutron stars that we were expecting. And there will be many, many more coming along. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Gravitational waves have been described as an entirely new window into the universe. In addition to the electromagnetic waves, the X-rays, the ultraviolet, visible, infrared, radio waves, etc., that all existing observatories have used. What is the potential, do you think, for gravitational wave astronomy? Well, it's already produced some big surprises because the first things detected were actually merging black holes and black holes of a mass that we had not expected. We've known for some time of black holes with a mass up to about 10 times the mass of the Sun. We know of extremely massive ones, hundreds of millions of times the mass of the Sun in the centres of galaxies. We didn't believe there were any in between. But the first few detections by the gravitational wave detector were black holes that sort of 30, 20, 30 times the mass of the Sun, pairs of these merging colliding, producing an even bigger one and sending out a good strong gravitational wave. That surely will be attracting a lot of young people just reading about these events into astronomy. What do you think then, if you are a young astronomer or an undergraduate in physics, say, thinking of going into astronomy or astrophysics, which areas would you go into? Would gravitational waves be one of them? Or have you got some other candidate fields where there's real excitement to come? Undoubtedly, gravitational waves is one of them. But there's another field that's just beginning to take off at last. I've been saying for about 50 years that we've been neglecting this area. It's what is called transient astronomy looking for things that change, flare, pop, burst. Until very recently, we've been staring and staring and staring to see the faintest objects. You know, Hubble Space Telescope seeing very deep into the universe, for example. And that's great stuff. But with a long exposure, you blur out anything that does a short, bright flash. And now with developments in computing and CCD cameras, we can take lots and lots and lots of frames of the same patch of the sky. If you want to go faint, you can stack, you can add up all those frames. But you can also examine individual frames and see if there's something that goes, you know, whiz-bang, and then is quiet again. So it's only in two or three frames. And this is a new branch of astronomy that's beginning to get going. It's finding stacks of stuff. Indeed, there's a telescope building in Chile that's going to be operating in a few years and it's reckoned it's going to see a million of these things per night. 
So we're going to have to teach the computers to do a lot of separating and screening for us. So there's also jobs for computer people as well as astronomers in all this. What is causing these transient events? Obviously, there are going to be lots of different objects, collisions, bursts caused by various physical processes. But what would be some examples of transient events where we think we are learning the cause? One of the things we're discovering is that some big stars at the end of their life explode with what's called a supernova. We thought we understood these. We had a couple of categories. We have very rapidly learned that that was a wild oversimplification and there are probably at the moment about 20 different categories. <laughs> it's turned out that some flare early, some flare late, some flare long, some flare short, you name it, you can find one that does it. So that's a field where there's a lot of information and old designations and patterns are rapidly disappearing. There's also a fascinating phenomenon in radio, actually discovered by the pulsar people. The pulsar people are looking for individual pulses. The snag is locally generated radio interference can give pulses, and so you need some way of sorting the cosmic pulses from the local interference. And there's a very neat way of doing it, which pulsar people now do automatically. The signal from the distant pulsar will have become dispersed, spread out in frequency. So if you were to listen to it, it would sound like this. With the high frequencies arriving before the low frequencies. Whereas if it's locally generated interference, it just goes, I'm sure people have heard local interference. And the length of that whistle, how drawn out it is, depends on how far the signal has come. And the radio astronomers have started finding single pulses that are very drawn out. So they're very, very distant. And with one exception, they never repeat, which is interesting. It's also a flipping nuisance because it means it's very hard to work out what you're looking at because apparently the thing doesn't do it again. So maybe it's a catastrophic event, end of life, something like that. This is a very new topic. New radio telescopes are coming on as we speak. There's a big one in Canada called CHIME that's going to find a lot of these. There's one that repeats which has been studied to death, but whether it's typical, we don't know. So this is a delightful and exciting topic at the moment, with a lot more stuff coming in in the near future. Maybe one day we'll make sense of it. Slightly off the wall question. What do you think are the prospects that we might detect some signals from extraterrestrial civilizations? I'm sure we've been asked that before. I don't know, but there's quite a neat way to test that. If we have some extraterrestrials, they probably live on a planet which will likely be going round their sun. And as they go round their sun, as they move, there's what we call a Doppler shift on the signal. You've possibly seen a child playing with a small car and going, Nyaw! that's Doppler shift. As the car's coming towards you, it's got the high pitch note, the Nyaw! as it goes past you and goes away from you, it drops. Nyaw! So small kids know about Doppler effect just through listening. 
So as these aliens go around their planet, some of the time they're coming towards you and the note would be more high pitched and some of the time they're going away from you and the note would be lower pitched. So one of the things people are looking out for is that kind of modulation of the signal. Thank you, Jocelyn. You have made the future of astronomy sound so exciting with or without extraterrestrial civilizations. We've been asking listeners to send in their views on overrated and underrated technologies, potential threats to the tech industry, and what non-tech book they would recommend that has influenced how they think about technology. Here's a clip from one of our previous interviewees, the astrophysicist Martin Rees, giving his views on some of these issues. I've been fascinated by how astronomy has advanced fast, but I've realised that the progress is not due to armchair theorists like me, it's 90% due to more precise instruments and more powerful telescopes. I think in space we can look forward to big developments in miniaturisation. Let me give you an example. There was a telescope on a spacecraft which sent back pictures of Pluto about two years ago. It's a NASA New Horizon telescope. And it sent back these pictures from a distance 10,000 times further away than the moon is. And they were wonderful, clear pictures. But what was amazing is that this was 1990s technology because it took 10 years to get to Pluto and this elaborate satellite would have been at least 5 or 10 years in the planning and construction stages. If we think of how mobile phones have changed in the last 20 years, we realise just how much better we can do in future using that technology in exploring space. I can well imagine that we will be exploring space by sending huge swarms of micro-satellites instrumented in a sophisticated way like in our mobile phones which will send back pictures of Jupiter and explore all its systems in a way that couldn't be done with such precision simply because miniaturization wasn't so developed at the time when they designed these earlier spacecraft. Of course all these new technologies have many applications. I'm interested in applications to astronomy, to exploring the solar system and beyond. Also they can be used for monitoring the Earth. You can make very small spacecraft which can monitor the Earth and its vegetation and monitor what's happening with very high precision. Of course, this is fine, although when governments do it, one does worry about security issues and invasions of privacy. And, of course, in all new technology, especially in the context of everything to do with the Internet and the web, there's a growing tension between privacy, security and liberty. Well, I hope that's inspired you to contribute your own answers to these questions. If you'd like to take part in the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Or why not send us an audio recording that we can include in a future episode? We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, then take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.